You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Graham Joyce is the author of the novels The Facts of Life and The Limits of Enchantment. His new novel is How to Make Friends with Demons. Thank you for joining me, Graham. Hello. Uh, Graham, this is a wonderful novel, and it gets the reader from the very first page with this really engaging storytelling voice. Tell us how you created the voice of William Haney. I heard it somewhere. I heard somebody saying that there was this specified number of demons in the universe. And I don't know where I heard it from, but really that was just the one line given and everything else spun out of that. And um, the character who was speaking it seemed to me to be somebody who was worldly, sophisticated, a wine lover, and having a midlife crisis of some kind, unspecified at the time that I heard it, and was clearly in a state of psychic collapse for reasons that I didn't know, but then I invented in the, in the rest of the novel. I guess that's how most of my, my stories start, is that I'll hear a voice say something, and I'll just spin it out of that. Now, uh, this book has a, has a really interesting approach to the fantastic. Um, it's an, both an integral, integral part uh, of the narrative, yet we're never, we're not really sure about, you know, this, this man who's telling us, you have, a, I think, create almost a, a new species of unreliable narrator. It's a thread common to lots of my books where the ambiguity is, is never resolved and that you're always given a rational way out because I make my character a, a perfectly functioning schizophrenic, or at least he has that possibility that, that he may be a schizophrenic, but of a functioning kind. Not all schizophrenics, apparently, have breakdowns or, or suffer from delusions to such a degree that they can't manage to um, cope with life. And he's one of these characters who may be a schizophrenic and yet is coping with life as well as the rest of us, let's put it like that. Well, all of the rest of us um, have a lot of the same kind of tensions he has. And one of the things you do very well is to um, use this trope of the fantastic to really dissect the kind of tensions and the kind of stressors that we experience. You use it to get at those in a way I don't think you could do in any other manner. Well, no, I don't think you can do it in 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 a naturalist novel or a realist novel. I mean, I've always taken the view there's no rational basis for emotional life. And if you, if you take the idea of the psyche in distress, then the only way to report it or portray it is to depict it in a fantastic mode or some sort of intrusion from a magical place or a place that, that completely challenges the, no, the notion of um, rationality or instrumental reason and f- looks for some kind of model of the universe which is in a different place to rationality. So that's why, wh- that's why fantasy tropes suit me very well when I'm trying to do that. Now, um, the, one of the things that, that this novel does quite well is to take these fantasy tropes, this completely fantastic and strange and scary notion that there are all sorts of demons out there, and yet you turn it 
into a catalog, a science, and it's almost counterintuitive, but it's really fun, and it makes it, I think, kind of convincing. Well, yeah. I mean, I used the academic model, really. Uh, you know, you see there's a footnote at the, on the very first page mm -hmm. as if this is a sort of um, a taxonomy of demons, you know, that somebody has carefully categorized the exact number of demons that exist in the universe. But, but in a way, I'm sending up that, that notion that, um, that we can scientifically catalog um, all our stresses and, and distresses um, but it does have that effect. It does have that effect of actually making you think that you're in the hands of a reliable narrator who's somewhat scientific in his approach to life, when in actual fact he's completely falling apart. Now, uh, the reasons he's falling apart are, are, I think, really interesting. And this is, I think, one of your strengths, is getting at the characters of men in modern relationships. And, and William Haney has a lot of relationships, and none of them are going very well. So let, let's talk about his relationship for his, with his wife, mm -hmm. uh, who has left him. Yeah, he's, um, he, he feels betrayed and he feels bitter because he's been doing his damnedest to be a decent family man, raising his kids. And uh, for some reason, he's taken his eye off the ball, and um, his wife's been disappointed with him, and she's left him for a celebrity TV chef. And, uh, you know, they've, they've gone, and they've taken his children with him, and he, 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 he's, he's left ruining the day, really, and, and, and his, um, his trust in women has been shaken. So... Already his primary re relationship as a husband and father has been rocked by this event. So that's one of the first uh, and major cracks that appear in his psyche and in the process of disintegration that's going to follow. And, and he's a, uh, a stand-up guy. He's the head of the UK's National Organization for Youth at Advocacy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things you also do very well is your, your novels manage to be quite grim and quite funny. And within the first few pages here, we encounter over 1,500 demons and a droning, almost terrorizing <laughs> meeting of UK bureaucracy. Talk about that, kind of that creating that contrast in life. Yeah, well, I mean, that came from my own experiences. I used to work in the youth service in the UK. And... Um, I, I used to have to sit through the most appalling meetings, and it was a it was a special kind of torture to sit through these meetings and look at the blue sky outside and wish you were outside. And it was the the difference between the the, the words, the kind of the bumbling, murmuring words of these bureaucrats, and and the contrast between the idea of going outside and being free under a blue sky that. It haunted me. It haunted me through these meetings. So I just wanted to have this character to have some of the misery that I had when I had to sit through those meetings. But he has a little bit more since he's got to deal with these uh, 1,500 demons. Now, could one of the things that novels like this really turn on, and again, we talked about this a little, is the, the rules of how the supernatural works. If you're going to have the supernatural, it has to have rules, and you have some very sophisticated rules here. Tell me how you created them and how much was research into actual you know, demonology and how much of this just came off the, the tip of your pen as you were writing. 
Oh, I was making it up. <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, you know, the most most of all the the, the the number. I don't know whether it's exactly random. I was I was reading, um, I was researching Hindu demons, and I discovered there are actually millions of Hindu demons and spirits in their um, pantheon. And, uh, you know, incalculable numbers. I don't know. I, the, the somebody, some um, Sanskrit scholar, decide, you know, has actually written that there, is a, there are a certain number, but they do run into the millions. And it just was staggering to me that somebody could have... Did they just make it up? What happened? I don't know. But it, the, the fact that somebody had come up with a number was, was the thing that prompted me to come up with my own number. And there is a numerological connection with what's going on in the book there. But I don't expect anybody to be bothered. But that was just me trying to, you know, put a, put a rational thread into the number I, I come up with in the first place. One of the things that this novel does quite well, too, is uh, the relationship between, you know, the, the father and his daughter and his son and how this all is kind of, you know, refracted, refracted in a... In a Funhouse mirror as we as he encounters and deals with uh, the demons in his life as well. Well, there's a kind of disillusion that's going on in his life, and there's a kind of despair too about the moral leadership of the con country, if I can call it that. Um, he feels there isn't one. He feels there isn't a moral leadership that the people who run the banks and who run the government and the celebrity figures in life are just offering a kind of slither towards some kind of immoral morass. And he feels his responsibility as a father very acutely, and he feels his responsibility lies in trying to offer some kind of moral um, values, not necessarily traditional moral values, but some kind of backbone by which you can stand up and, and face a chaotic universe. So he feels his role as a father very, very acutely, and the fact that his children have been taken away from him by this divorce is, is what, as I say, creates the first threat to his, to his world order. This world order has included for 20 years demons. <laughs> now, that doesn't make it like most world orders I know. <laughs> no, no. No, the demons, um, the demons came from... Um, um, something he did when he was a young man. Um, now this is kind of an interesting trope because uh, it's M. John Harrison uses this in the course of the heart. And he I, does indeed. And, and I was talking with Peter Straub, oh. and his forthcoming novel also has this kind of student, you know, experience that leads into something that re re resonates through life. Oh, that is interesting because I think a lot of what we do as writers is to try to discover some of the awe and wonder of our childhood, and we try to replicate it in sophisticated forms through our novels. And, and I'm including student life as part of that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Student life has, has, has changed things, and I think that by the time we've advanced into our student years, we begin to glimpse the dark side in a way that you don't necessarily as a child. Of course, you can you can witness or experience evil as a child, but somehow you don't understand how the machinery of it works. By the time you're a student, you begin to understand that you are responsible in some way and that you make decisions which have consequences. And this is a kind of uh, a moral challenge that's not available to you when you're, when you're a child. Um, 
So I guess most of us, as we as we grow older, think that we maybe should have been more careful when we were uh, in our student years. And um, the the story of uh, invoking demons is a is a, a metaphor for that. Um, this character actually writes a, a, a book um, to uh, give a kind of um, practical guidebook to invoking demons. But the thing is, he, he's, he completely ma makes it up. He invents it as out of a mishmash of different stuff he's read. And uh, his plan was to try and pass it off to a publisher as a, a genuinely discovered document. But he gave up on the idea halfway through before it was finished. And then a fellow student found it, used the invented rituals, and genuinely covered, uh, conjured up a demon. So um, this asks all sorts of questions about authenticity and the, the nature of our um, responsibility and culpability in life. I mean, how could it work? How could it possibly work? He invented it anyway, and yet it did that same thing. So I'm asking questions about responsibility, culpability, and um, the fact that only the tiniest suggestion of culpability can lead you into um, sins of commission. And it also speaks, too, to how we're all haunted by our past, that the idea of ghosts isn't something that's, you know, spook houses and Casper. It's These are the very real emotions that we, we, keep us, yeah. hold us behind every day. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I don't believe in the Christian notion of hell. Um, but I do believe in ideas like remorse, guilt and remorse. I mean, if there is a hell, I think it would be a long period of remorse. That's the nearest I can, the, the kind of hum, humane and and uh, and atheistic view of a, of a notion of hell. It would be it would be exactly that, and that's what this character is suffering from. He's suffering from a a deep remorse that's turned his mind in against itself. And one of the things this book talks about too is wars and our our recent wars we've come you know we have a history of wars that were really a, a kind of conciliatory and good world war one was the world war to end all wars didn't quite work out that way but when the people who are in it fought it and fought it well and valiantly and the same was true of world war two and it really was we're hoping the world the War to end all world wars, and it was fought. It was really, literally, a battle of good against evil. And, and again, when the Americans and, and when we entered into it and came out of it, it was for the right reasons. The wars were fought have, that have been fought since then have been nothing like that. And, and this novel, I think, evokes that incredibly well. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I feel the same. I grew up um, believing and still believe that the the um, the Second World War was a fight against an evil Nazism, a racist regime. It was in every sense a justifiable war. It was easy to be to be right about. Mm -hmm. And then, as I was growing up, the Vietnam War came along, and uh, I was, as a teenager, really too young to participate in that counterculture, but I was watching it. And that counterculture that came from American youth and student politics, American youth and student politics, directly influenced British uh, youth and student politics. 
So I was kind of fascinated by that counterculture and the fact that it was effective in bringing an earlier, earlier end to the Vietnam War. It did that job. So I grew up thinking, well, that job was done. That job's been done. There was an unjust war prosecuted and uh, uh, American youth and students helped to end it. And that, wouldn't, that job wouldn't have to be done again. Cut to 20, 30 years later, and we seem to do exactly the same thing all over again. It just happens to be Iraq this time and, you know, another third world country. And here we are again. It just seemed absolutely astonishing to me that we had repeated the same hideous and, and, and ugly mistake prosecuting a, an adventurous war which was clearly motivated by greed and not ideology at all. And that was, it seemed, seemed easy to see. And yet there we were, there we were, you know, we were being led into it. Uh, this time the British and the Americans were, you know, standing shoulder to shoulder in that war. Now at the, at the time I was writing this, I discovered that the, of the homeless beggars in the UK, that 70%, an incredible, incredible 70% of homeless beggars are ex-service people. Now, wow. yeah, That's I just, I nearly fell over when I saw that, and I checked these figures, went back and had a look, and it's absolutely true. And uh, a lot of the people that you will, you, you will see on the street selling uh, the big issue, you know, this homeless paper and the rest of it, are, are ex-military personnel. And they're people that are on the streets, destitute, alcoholic, drug, drug takers, and so on, are people who've returned, in, in, in the case of this story, the first Gulf War, and haven't been able to cope with their experiences. And, and, and it was kind of uh, that part of the novel that comes in uh, to, to with, a, with, a, with a, um, another figure who can see demons, in this case a, a sergeant, was, my, was written out of rage and sympathy for these people that we, we, we send off to do these jobs. I mean, I don't support the war, but uh, these, we do need an army, and we send these people off to do the jobs, and then we don't look after them when they come back and when they come back damaged. So the, the idea of, of, of a different kind of demon was at large in that, in, that, in that story. But of course, the soldier who's in that story ends up uh, interacting with my main protagonist. So that's where that war section was coming from. It was my astonishment at, that I'd missed this detail about the, um, you know, who these people are that are on the streets of Britain. And this was an O. Henry uh, award-winning short story. Yes. And, um, and talk about, you know, having created the world and this vision of the world with that story, uh, turning it into a, a novel, because that's not, can't be, have been easy. No, it wasn't. I had this, um, I had this unfinished story, the one that was published in the, in the Paris Review and won the O. Henry Award, on its own. And, uh, it, you know, it was trying to deal with my feelings about what we were doing, as I was just saying, about what the heck we were doing in the Gulf. And the soldier has an encounter with a, a demon. It might be the devil. It, you know, it might be the, the Muslim devil in the desert. It was, that, it was that that made me start thinking about demons and the nature of demons. Because although that story stands alone... It, it, just like the larger story that's around it, it offers you both possibilities of mm -hmm. interpreting uh, Seamus the Soldier's experience as a genuine supernatural experience or 
the fact that he's been so damaged and deranged by the experience that he's had in that particular conflict that he's maybe just seeing things. So the demon, the demons occupy the same kind of ambiguous role in the short story as they do in the larger story. So I was trying to pattern it. So one thing reflected the other and commented on the other. Now, um, this kind of ambiguity, I think, uh, is part of your appeal, and not just to a general readership, but I think, too, that you're, again, one of these uh, writers who's leading uh, fantastic literature into uh, a, the world of general literature, to make it so it's really not only are does your character have a difficult, do your readers have this ambiguity at the heart of the novel um, in terms of whether or not the supernatural is real? You will let it go either way. But your novel <laughs> itself is an ambiguous entity because we could just shelve it right there with the science fiction novels or the horror novels, but we could also shelve it with general literary fiction. And could you talk about the, you know, the rise of the acceptance of elements of the fantastic in general literary culture? Oh, I think, I think literary culture has, has um, colonized, uh, you know, the genre, if you like. I mean, it's recognized. What, 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 let, let me go back and say that I think during the 20th century, modernism with its experiments in consciousness and everything had to move to a more naturalistic mode because it needed to anchor itself in naturalism because, you know, you'd have stream of consciousness writing and so on. So it seemed to want to re reconfigure all stories and set it in the real world because you were already fracturing the real world with the style level, what was happening on the surface of literature. So that, that became the presiding mode of the 20th century and fantasy and the supernatural and the intrusion of magic, which had basically informed most of literature since, since it ever began, was r somewhat repressed. And then towards the end of the 20th century, a, a, a lot of literary novelists were moving away from uh, naturalism and realism, and they were incorporating science fictional ideas, ideas of the fantastic, horror ideas, and it was, it, it, it was all it was all being incorporated into what we were, were and still calling literary fiction. And I think now when you look at, um, you look at uh, m most literary figures, at least over in, uh, in Britain, like Hilary Mantel, you know, who's just won the Booker Prize, um, although she's just won for a historical novel, her previous novels are often novels of the supernatural there are other figures on the Booker shortlist that were using supernatural tropes in their in their literature. I think that there's been a, a complete reassertion of the fantastic in in literary fiction, and the main reason for that is that modernism, with its retreat into naturalism and realism, lost narrative thrust, and the the, the literary novelists are trying to now or have to reclaim narrative thrust. And that's why they're raiding the genres, because that's what the genres do best, narrative thrust. Um, also, I would think, too, that our, our world has changed, and that because the world we live in is no longer so prosaic, it seems more splintered to us. I mean, there's lots of stuff that have, that is in our everyday lives that, in living memory, um, 
would have seemed to us science fiction. To me, when I was 12 years old, the con I couldn't even have wrapped my brain around the concept of a microwave oven. It just wouldn't have made sense to me. Um, now everybody, you buy a microwave oven for $50. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the, the pace of the change of technology is just absolutely breathtaking. And we all know that it doesn't matter how much you love those pellets of compressed paper, as I do, that what's happening in downloading to your Kindles and Sony readers and, every, and all the rest of it is going to be seismic over the next 10 years. It's absolutely going to change the face and the nature of publishing. And, um, you know... Uh, in, in, within this 10-year period that I'm predicting, who knows what else is going to come in that we can't even see right now, you know? It, it, it may be that Sony's and Kindle's already become redundant in that 10-year period and that something else has taken over. I can see, I can see great advances and, um, you know, there's no point lamenting the demise of the of the the paper book. It's still going to be there. The paper book is not going to go away in the same way that film didn't go away when television came along. Sure, it's still going to be there, but it's not going to account for the volume that it counts for now. And we've got to get ready for it. We've got to get ready for it, and we've got to work with it. One of the things that, that your novels uh, do very well, too, is to um, take all of this kind of uh, this angst and this uncertainty and this doubt, and, and you spin it out with a, uh, a ripping yarn and a sense of humor. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a view I have about life that it's, um, you know, it's made up of horror and humor. You know, that we live in a hostile universe. We, we most certainly do. We're all going to die, you know. Um, and, and the horror is, is closer than we think all the time. Um, you know, I mean, I could easily just reference back to the, our discussion about the, the Gulf and Iraq and, and all the rest of it. Horror is very close in what we do. Um, but humor um, is, is some creative response that we have to this universe that bonds us and helps with our search for optimism in what is, is, is uh is essentially a hostile universe. And I'm, I'm fascinated by this idea of um, an anti-entropic uh, uh, system that's at large in the universe. I think it's called complication theory or complexity theory or something like that, which is the idea that cultures, like the fact that we're discussing books now, um, are endlessly generating new ideas and and new fictions and new ways of working. So are they operating on an anti-entropic basis. And I think humor does that in the hive mind, that it's, it endlessly refreshes itself and it acts as a kind of anti-entropic force for human beings. So I think there's this battle going on. I refer to it in the book as the battle between uh, gravity and levity. Uh, when I have the devil come along to the soldier with his foot on the mind and says, what you need right now is a bit of levity. It might help your situation. So I'm trying in the book to make that war at large through the interactions of people, the battle between gravity and levity. In fact, I almost had it as a title for the book at one time, the war between gravity and levity, until my editor just laughed it out of court and said it's the most ridiculous title I've ever heard. But it does actually 
um, it does actually put in a capsule what I think is going on in the book, that there is a war between gravity and levity. There are terrible things that happen in the book, but there's a constant tone of levity that's trying to work against it, and it's trying to seek the optimism we need um, if, we, if, we don't, if we're not living in a sort of pol Pollyanna world um, we need we need that uh, we need that recognition of the darkness, but we need um, to draw strength from our creativity and our humour. Now, tell me about your new book. Um, okay, you have a new book coming out. You finished this. Well, this one just came out. Yeah, and it it's on, it, from Nightshade, but you finished a new one even as we speak, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, that's right. It's called The Silent Land. I just uh, sent it. It's going to be published by Galance in uh, the UK. I'm not sure who's going to publish it yet in uh, in the US uh, because it hasn't been uh, sold yet. But um, just two days ago, we managed to, or my agent managed to sell it to a Hollywood studio, Focus Features. Um, so they've already picked up the film option to it. So I'm quite, I'm quite buoyant about this new book. Um, quite hopeful for it. It's again, it's different. I mean, most of my books are, uh, take a different strike at the world. This one is uh, is pretty much a two-hander. You know, whereas the the uh, How to Make Friends with Demons has got lots of characters, and it was I was trying to make an almost modern Dickensian London uh, with with all kinds of different people in it. This book only has two. Principal character. He has two principal characters in, and there's only cameo appearances from other people in the book, which is quite a challenge. It's quite a challenge to keep a two-hander going for the whole distance of a novel. But I wanted to do it because I like to set myself a new challenge each time I do a uh, a new book. I don't mm -hmm. like to replicate the patterns, the narrative patterns inside a book. Um, so I set myself the task of um, seeing if I could just write about two people for a whole novel. The novel is set in the French Pyrenees, which is um, Catalonian. Catalonia spreads across into Spain, so it's one of those strange border areas where you you might you might not know uh, if you skied across the border whether you were in Spain or whether you're in France. And uh, Catalonians have their own language, so it was it was a it was a zone where the rules are provisional, and. Um, Two characters are caught in an avalanche, and uh, they escape the avalanche, they think. But then, right at the beginning of the novel, they realize they actually died in this avalanche. And the, the novel is, um, traces their, 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 their progress over the course of the next uh, seven days. And it's one of those, uh, it's one of those novels that stories a little bit like the sixth sense or the others where there's a there's a reality flip in it though in this case not that you find out that they're dead because you're told right right at the beginning that they're actually dead and it's a ghost story and a love story together and i've been trying to to find a way of writing a ghost story and a love story um in a single uh novel for a long time um and this idea came came to me so uh, i think i think i think it I think it works probably better as a ghost story than a love story. But anyway, that, that's what I was trying to do. And, and tell us a little bit about how the fan, you, obviously there, it's got a ghost in it, um, and you're talking to characters who are dead, which immediately offers that kind of fantastic trope, offers you possibilities that you can't realize without the fantastic, can you? 
No, it, the fantastic has to be an element of it because um, the, the fun of the book is that the rules are changing all the time about the nature of the universe that these two dead figures find themselves in. For example, the progress of time seems to have seems to have been um, frozen at first for only certain things. Um, but then, for example, a candle won't burn down at all. And then, uh, for no apparent reason, this changes and candles begin to burn down very, very fast. So fast that it's not worth lighting them. Um, and so that, that's just one example of, of many rule changes that happen in this, in this dead zone. I've been speaking with Graham Joyce. His new novel is How to Make Friends with Demons. Thank you for joining me, Graham. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.